if you need a copy of the Lord's Word, uh, Craig has these uh, scripture journals. He'll come around. Just put your hand up, and he will put one in it if you would benefit from having one with you this morning. Uh, but you will be greatly helped if you keep God's Word open for you throughout the duration of our service. Um, just in worship there, I was reminded that you know, as we walk through these doors every Sunday morning, there is a lot, um, a lot of things in life that maybe separate us from each other, right? History, background, anybody else need a scripture? Anybody else need a Bible? Um, our history, our, our background, maybe even language, appearance, age, preferences, there is a lot that separates us as people as we walk through these doors every Sunday morning. Um, just standing there this morning worshiping with you guys, I was reminded that, that as many forces are there as there are out there that seek to divide us as people, as we walk through these doors on Sunday morning, we do so with a tremendous amount in common. First thing that we walk through those doors with is we have a shared need, Right? Every one of us, regardless of where we come from in life, regardless of what degree we, maybe we hold or what position or, or uh, regardless of our story, every single one of us walks through these doors every single week with a shared need. We're needy people. What keeps us coming back week after week after week is because our need isn't the only thing we have in common, right? We also have a shared provision in Jesus Christ, right? That is an amazing thing, an amazing thing. This morning, as we turn to scriptures, we, we do so every service, every week, because it is in this word that we are reminded of how God has delivered us, how he has provided for us in our need. So I'm going to talk a little bit this morning on Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 13. Before I do so, would you just pray with me? Father God, we thank you um, that you and your gracious provision saw us in our desperate need and you moved towards us. You provided for us. Lord, I pray that that truth, that that reality would never grow stale to us. Lord, I pray that that truth this morning would encourage us and that it would unite us. I pray that your word would do that just now. Lord, we pray you take these words which we believe to be eternal and true, and we ask that you would write them on our hearts. Lord, use me. I ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, as many of you know, I was born and raised in Dubuque. My parents still live in the same home that I grew up in, and so every now and then as we head back, well, every time we head back to Dubuque, we always, and it's the same route to Dubuque, right? My parents live on sort of the south west side as soon as you enter in Dubuque from Highway 20. And so the, the straightest, easiest, quickest path is to get on Highway 20 and just ride it into town, right? 
Well, every now and again, I don't know if my kids, they may not notice, I don't know if my wife even notices, but every now and again, I will take an alternate route, take a detour, right? I'll, it's approaching Dubuque, just outside of Dubuque. I'll turn right on North Cascade Road, and then I'll make a left on English Mill. I do this for a reason. English Mill takes you directly to the street where my parents' house is. English Mill is a road that I grew up as a child running down the hill with a fishing pole in a hand, heading to Catfish Creek, fishing, right? English Mill is a beautiful, beautiful road. As you drive, it winds through the countryside just outside of Dubuque. You see bluffs, you see trees, you see rolling green pastures where cows are grazing and a creek is cutting through the hills of Dubuque. For me, English Mill is beautiful because English Mill is home. Right? So every now and then I will take a digression on the path home. Because it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful path. It's a beautiful view. It's a beautiful route. This morning in our text, we actually see Paul doing something very similar. If you look at your text, you'll see in verse 1, Paul starts off, he's about to do something. He says, for this reason, I Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he makes a right on North Cascade Road. Paul digresses. In fact, he doesn't pick up his thought. What he is about to do in verse 1, he doesn't actually do until verse 14. He says it again. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So everything from verse 1 to verse 14 is English Mill Road. It is a digression. But it is a beautiful and a glorious digression. And we this morning should be thankful that Paul turns the steering wheel hard to the right. What I want to show you this morning... And I want to show you this at the. I want to show you ultimately where we're going. Okay, what is the effect of this digression? Why is Paul interrupted? I'm going to show you that if you look at verse 13. He says, "So I ask you, verse 13, not to lose heart." Everything from 1 to 13, there are no commands in these verses until you get to verse 13. Then Paul makes it very clear why he digressed. What was his intent? And his intent of the digression was to keep us from losing heart. Now, if you, that's his intent was. If you look at the content of his digression, you will see that Paul digression is centered around Christ's church. So the big idea, what I hope to achieve this morning by walking us through this passage is that like the original readers, that we would not lose heart, but that we would allow the glory of Christ's church to strengthen and encourage every single one of us. I'll say it again. That we would allow the glory of Christ's church to strengthen us and encourage us. Now, it, there is sort of a practical encouragement we get right off the bat, right? Paul starts to pray and he gets distracted. I don't know if you can relate to that. I know I certainly can. 
this morning, just at the very surface level, it's a reminder that oftentimes those distractions are things we should pay attention to. So if you can relate to Paul, if you've bowed your knee or bowed your head or sat at your desk or laid on the floor with an intent to start out in prayer, and before you know it, your mind is thinking about maybe a strained relationship or a particular stress or a, a hidden desire, just at the very surface, practical level here, pay attention to that interruption, okay? At a much deeper level this morning, we will see that the glory of Christ church serves for us to strengthen us and encourage us. If you remember, if you were here last week, and just to kind of summarize what we saw before this, um, last week we saw this amazing truth told that peace is possible because of Jesus. Because Jesus, a Jewish Messiah, died to reconcile Jews and Gentiles to God and to each other, we can sit here this morning confident that peace is possible. When the rest of the world tells us otherwise, we can open up this book and we can be reminded that it actually is possible. Before Christ, we know that Gentiles, and the word Gentiles here, another way to, to maybe better understand that if you're new to the Bible, is the word nations. Ethnos, nations, okay, so the nations, before Christ, the nations, those who were not Jewish, endured a double alienation. We saw this last week. They were alienated, they were separated from God because of their sin, and they were alienated or separated from each other because of the law of Moses, all right? And then Paul tells us peace is possible because now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Christ, Gentiles who once experienced a double alienation, now, because of Jesus' blood, experience a double reconciliation, both with God and with the people of God. And as God, through the blood of Christ, actively tears down to the dividing wall of hostility, the wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles, the law of Moses, as that wall comes down... He's also building another structure, namely the church, where Christ Jesus is the cornerstone and where God's spirit dwells, the very house of God. Peace is possible. And when it happens between Jew and Gentile, we see a beautiful structure formed. This morning in our passage, what we will see is... Uh, Three points. First, we'll see that there's a mystery that's revealed. Paul's already referred to it. Then we'll see that there is a ministry that has been given. And finally, we'll see that there is a mission that is being fulfilled. So first, in verses 1 through 6, we learn about a certain mystery. A mystery which has been revealed. Three different times in this section, Paul makes reference to this mystery. Now, our 21st century Minds hear the word mystery and we think, we think secret, we think dark, we think puzzling. This is not necessarily what the first century Christian in Ephesus would have thought of when they heard of a mystery. Rather, the word was commonly used in reference to a set of secret teachings in the pagan world that one had to be initiated into. Now, in Christianity, we know there is no secret teachings that are reserved for some sort of spiritual elite. 
So when Paul says mystery, he means something that can't be obtained through natural human discovery. So there is a truth that exists. There is a reality that exists that cannot, we cannot lay hold of through our own natural ability, but only by the revelation of God. It is a revealed truth. Paul's already made reference in his letter to the existence of said mystery. Truth about God that is revealed by God. We saw it first in chapter 1, verse 8. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Now, three times in this section, Paul refers again to this mystery. And we're thankful that he does. The first thing I want you to see about this mystery is that it was revealed to Paul. Paul says he understands the mystery. It was revealed to him. Verse 3. The mystery was made known to me by revelation. That which can only be known about God was made known to Paul. Paul was a student of the sacred scriptures. A Pharisee of Pharisees. He had been living, though, in darkness. We saw this a couple weeks ago when we talked about Nicodemus. Right? Somebody who was, had familiarity with the Old Testament text, yet their eyes were closed to the truth of who Jesus was. But God in his great mercy did for Paul what he, Paul prayed in chapter 1, verse 18, that he would also do for his church, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened to the truth of who God is. Paul has received, he says, special insight into the realities of who God is and how he's worked through creation. So this is a, a mystery that's been revealed to Paul. Secondly, we see that this mystery concerns Christ. This mystery concerns Christ. Look at verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. At the very center of this mystery is Christ. With the coming of Christ in history comes a special revelation into the plan that God was working from the very beginning of time. Paul had insight into this mystery in some, uh, so much as he was, had knowledge of who Christ was and how Christ worked. The mystery is a mystery of Christ. Okay? Verse 5, which was made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul, you have to understand this, is not preaching a new gospel. He's not preaching a new message. The Old Testament always had the blessing of the world or the nations in mind. That is not new. We saw that last week as we looked at the Abrahamic covenant. From the very beginning, we understand that God is going to bless the nations. What is new is the extent of this blessing. The total Access the equal status that these Gentiles would enjoy as members of Christ's church. Finally, about this mystery, we learn the definition. What then is the mystery? Okay, Paul, it was revealed to Paul. It's concerning Christ. What's the ministry? Mystery. Well, thank God, he tells us in verse 6 very clearly 
what the mystery is. Look at verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ. I'll read it one more time. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So through the gospel, the, the Gentile nation have now been included into the people of God. As a result, they are fellow heirs. They are Christ's inheritance just like Israel was. And they inherit the richness of Christ just like Israel was available to Israel. They were members of the same body. Members of the same body. They are partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Through the gospel, those who were far have been brought near. And as a result, they enjoy all of the privileges of the body of Christ, of Christ's people, of God's people. The sum of, to sum up the mystery, it is the total union of the Jews and the Gentiles through their union with Christ. So as people are being reconciled to God, they are reconciled together. They are building a house for the Lord to dwell on, his church, his church. That, Paul says, is the mystery. Now you cannot you cannot read this in, in, in thinking of sort of first century world and all of the barriers and the, and the things that separated people. Naturally, there is going to be social consequence, right? As they come into relationship with one another. So right away we learn that the, the gospel, and we'll see this as we continue to go, the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks down barriers that separated them, yes, spiritually from God, but also socially from one another. It impacts their relationships. So that's what the mystery is, the inclusion of the nations into the people of God. And it's not a tiered or a leveled inclusion. They don't have limited access, right? They have full Equal, co-heirs, co-members, co-partakers in the promises. All of the promises that were given to Israel are now find their yes in Jesus to everybody. This is no small thing. That's what the mystery is. Then we'll see that verses 7 and 9, that in light of this mystery, Paul has been given a unique ministry. Paul shares that he personally has a unique responsibility concerning the mystery of Christ, the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. I want you to recognize that as we consider Paul's unique ministry, I want you to notice Paul's awareness of the mystery of Christ is not simply a cerebral revelation. Rather, it is a complete life reorientation. Paul's understanding of Christ dramatically and emphatically affects every aspect of Paul's life. It's not a revelation that stays here, okay? It, it transforms the mind, absolutely. But it also transforms every area of Paul's life. Every area. Paul is, to be certain, a new man. Completely a new man. The revelation of Jesus that Paul received on the Damascus Road didn't just impact the way he thought about God. It impacted every aspect of his life and the way he lived for God. 
His convictions, his worship, his words, his actions, his relationships, his community. There was not an area of his life that would remain as it once was. Paul was a totally new man. And be sure the power of the gospel has the exact same effect on us today. As you continue reading through, through Ephesians, you will see that the gospel impacts the way you are married. It impacts the way you treat your employees, the way you treat your children. Every aspect of your life is radically affected by the power of the gospel. There's not an area that goes untouched. Your finances, right? As you consider, and this is where you have to put work, as you consider what does it mean to navigate this world, Iowa City, 2020, what does it mean to navigate this as a Christian and to be faithful to our Lord? This is where we think. We open up the scriptures. Every area of our life has been radically, radically impacted by the gospel. It's true today for us. We have been brought, folks, from the domain of darkness. And we have been placed into the kingdom of his beloved son. We have been delivered from darkness, placed in a marvelous light, and that light shines into every area of our life. Every area. So as we consider Paul's ministry, the first thing I want you to see is that it's an act of grace. He's been given a unique responsibility in light of the mystery, and this responsibility, this ministry, this calling that's been placed on his life is an act of God's grace. You look down in verse, we saw it first in verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship, that's given him something to steward of God's grace that was given to me for you. So it's an act of God's grace and it's intended to bless the church. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. Paul sees his ministry that he now has which he will summarize in verses 8 and 9, as a gift. It's a gift of God's grace. Paul did not receive his vocation as a minister of the gospel because of a qualification that he bared, that he owned on his own. It was not his pedigree, his popularity, or his personality that God needed in order to do his work. Right? Rather, he tells us, actually, in light of his weakness, it was, in fact, his most unlikeliness that God decided to capitalize on who Paul was. He says, the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. In fact, it was the fact that he had nothing to offer that God said, I'll work with that. And that should, that should be reassuring to us this morning. Right? God is not surveying our church and saying, who has the, who has the best name in this community? Who has the, the highest degree or the greatest ambition? That's who I need to work with. That's not how God works. He works in and through our weakness to put on display his power. Paul was an unlikely Servant, his ministry was an act of grace. Next thing I want you to see, specifically, he talks about what his ministry is. We see this in verses 8 and 9. We see that his ministry, the first part, 
is proclaiming the richness of Christ to the Gentiles. See it in verse 8. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This makes sense considering what the mystery is, right? If the mystery is to reveal that God has included the Gentiles into his covenant people, it makes sense that Paul's job now is to go tell them, hey, right, come on in, right? This makes sense. Paul's job was to declare to the, the Gentiles their inclusion into the promises of God. The price has been paid. The blood has been shed. The wall has come down. All the promises of the Old Testament which find their yes in Christ are now available to you, the Gentiles. Specifically, he gets to tell them about the unsearchable riches of Christ. He did not preach the grandeur of human nature. Or the possibility of your best life now. Paul preached Christ. He preached Christ. Paul had no stingy savior to present to a select few. No narrow-hearted Christ to be the head of a clique. No weak redeemer who could pardon only those little offenders. Paul preached a great savior to the great masses full of great sinners. He preached the conqueror with blood-stained garments, prevailing in the greatness of his strength, whose name was mighty to save. That's who Paul preached. And like Paul, we too must be compelled both by our love for Christ and our love for one another. He was convinced that Christ never impoverishes those who trust him, who embrace him, and who live for him. Rather, he says, he immeasurably riches them. It's beautiful. Paul has a unique calling and a unique world at a unique time to be sure. However, can you imagine it looking any other way? As we receive the richness of Christ Jesus, can you imagine us not having the similar effect for us now, if we believe the gospel, both the truth from God and the, the riches for our fellow man that are now available to them, who could silence us? Who? Spurgeon is famous for saying every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Those are your options this morning. You're either, either a proclaimer of Jesus or an imposter. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or you do not love him at all. He cannot be, or sorry, back it up. It cannot be that one has a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about them. It's not, it's not even a possibility. Thirdly, we see the second part of his ministry was to make known his mystery to all men. So he had a unique calling to make the Gentiles aware of their inclusion into the body of Christ, people of God. But he also saw in verse 9, part of his job was to make known the mystery to everyone. Look at verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. 
who created all things. At first glance, you might think he's simply restating what he stated in verse 8. But as you look, you'll see that there are three significant differences between verses 8, verse 8, and verse 9. In verse 8, he says his unique ministry was to preach the gospel. In verse 9, we see that it was to bring to light. The focus in verse 8 and verse 9 is on the content of the message. Sorry, not on the content of the message, but on the condition of the recipients. Right? Darkness of ignorance is where he saw people living. This is Paul's story on the road to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him, called him, right? Paul's eyes went dark, right? And as he came to, the things like scales fell off of his eyes, and it, his eyes, and it was representative of his own story from darkness to light. So he sees part of his, his job is to tell his own story, Right? Secondly, we have the description of the message. In verse 8, it says the unsearchable riches of Christ. And in verse 9, the description is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. In verse 8, the message was Christ. In verse 9, the focus begins to shift to what Christ creates, namely the church. And the final distinction between these two, verses 8 and 9, is that Paul says, and this is the most, I think, important one, is that Paul says in verse 8 his ministry was to the Gentiles. And in verse 9 he says his ministry was to everyone. Okay, This message of the Gentile inclusion was a message of mutual reconciliation and joint membership. It was after all an entirely new society, a new humanity that God was making. So it is fitting everyone needs to hear about it. Right? He doesn't just have a responsibility to proclaim it to the Gentiles. He also needs to let the nation of Israel know, hey... There is a new society that the Lord is making. And in fact, it was this message that got him in the most trouble. That's why he actually, he's in, he's in jail right now as he's writing these words because they didn't like this message. They didn't like it. Paul's conversion testimony on the, we, we see that, sorry, back up. The Lord made it clear that when Paul was converted, that he was a chosen instrument of his to carry his name before the Gentiles and the kings of the children of Israel. Paul's role as a missionary is captured by the words of Jesus that was spoken to him in Acts 26, verse 18. His job was to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of the Satan of God uh, to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul was God's chosen instrument to bring God's saving message to the ends of the earth. And it was a message that everybody needed to hear. Now, my wife and I, we have five children. And three of those children were kind of, you know, kind of all close by. They were young. So bringing a new child into the home is, you know, there's preparation that needs to be done, Right? You need to, you know, obviously I think the, the, the primary focus is on this new child, right? Making sure that you, you love that child. I know just having another kid, oftentimes, like, is there even room in my heart to love another baby? Like, I love, you know, it's just a question as a parent, you just are asking. So you want to make sure that that kid understands, that child, that baby understands that they are a, an equal member in your household. That they are loved by you. Right? So you want to make sure that they get that. But at the same time, you also have to prepare your existing children for, 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 for a new 
child coming into the home that's not going to be one day returned. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And that this child is going to have total access to the refrigerator one day. I mean, with some minor, you know, barriers or restrictions. Total access to mom and dad's bed, just like everybody else. Total access to mom and dad's toilet. I don't know why, but they really enjoy mom and dad's toilet. Total access. It's a message. There's a new member of the family. It's a message that those kids need to hear and to prepare for. And so Paul is saying, listen, I don't just have to tell the Gentiles this. The nation of Israel, Jewish Christians need to hear it as well. This mystery needs to be known by everybody. The church is a visible symbol of God's eternal plan to unite all things to himself under Christ. So as Gentiles enter into this community by the blood of Christ, and as Jews enter by the blood of Christ, we take heart that the God who created in the beginning is, is in the process currently today of recreating through the Gentile inclusion. Paul's ministry, simply put, was not just a ministry to make known to the Gentiles. It was a ministry to make known to everybody. So finally, we'll look at verse 10 here. And I want to, as we kind of wrap up, focus on the idea that this mission that God is after is being fulfilled and what it accomplishes it. So Paul's already established the who of this new humanity, the church, Jew and Gentile. And he has gone to great lengths with extreme precision and clarity to help us understand the how the new humanity came to be. By the blood of Jesus, through the cross of Christ, which is his immeasurable grace and kindness towards us. So far, I hope that as we are talking about what Christ is doing, what God is doing through Christ in creation, that this is a compelling nature that you see here of God's people of the community that Christ has made, who we are and how we get here. The implications of this truth are incalculable. And in verse 10, Paul turns his attention to the so that. And if I just, if I were you and I had my Bible, that so that phrase, I would circle it, I would highlight it, I would underline it. It tells us the purpose. Why all of this? Verse 10 is key. And it shows us that the purpose to this ministry that Paul hasn't touched on yet is of cosmic significance. Look at verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The reason why the coming together of these once separated, once alienated people the reason why it is so significant, so important is because God, through their reconciliation to God and one another, God is making something known. He's putting something on display, he says. What is that something? It is the manifold wisdom of God. When God's people come, Gentiles, nations, many, and Jews together... God says he displays, through their union, his manifold wisdom. What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Manifold. It's an uncommon word today. Unless you're talking about a car. Isn't there something in a car called a manifold? Is that right? I don't even know what that is. Am I right, Mark? Yeah, okay. 
It's an uncommon word here, and it's an uncommon word in the Bible as well. It means as many-sided, spotted, wrought with various colors. It would be a word that would be used to describe a wreath of many colors, or maybe a bouquet of flowers, a variety of different colorful flowers, maybe a beautifully embroidered cloth, manifold. Here it's used to describe not a bouquet of flowers, not a embroidered cloth, not a part of your car engine. You know. It is used to describe the wisdom of God. Just as Christ's riches are unsearchable, so God's wisdom is many-sided. His wisdom is unfathomable. And we see it when we look at the church. So you get an idea of God's wisdom, unsearchable wisdom, when you look at the church. Listen to what John Stott says. The church is a multiracial, multicultural community. Is, sorry, the church as a multiracial, multicultural community is like a beautiful tapestry. Its members come from a wide range of colorful backgrounds. No other human community resembles it. Its diversity and harmony are unique. It is God's new society. And the many-colored fellowship of the church is the reflection of the many-colored wisdom of God. So that God wants to make his colorful wisdom known through the church. And when people come from different walks of life, from different places, from different tribes, from different tongues, from different nations, come together, we do so and declare that we're all sinners. We are all in need of a Savior. We are all bought by the blood of Christ. And we are all united as his church. Now, who does Paul want to see this manifold wisdom of God? He wants to make it known. Who does he want to see it? says the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The way Paul talks about rulers and authorities elsewhere in the letter, there can be little doubt that Paul's considered these forces to be thoroughly evil spiritual beings who had no power in creation, but who are limited. Sorry, who had power in creation, but are limited in their power. So what Paul is saying is that through the unified church, the many people coming together as one people, this one church made up of many nations, many tribes, many colors, many tongues, makes known the colorful wisdom of God to the demonic and satanic forces in the universe. Okay? In other words, the existence of an ethnically diverse church serves as a constant reminder to Satan that he has been defeated. And has been uncomfortably and presently positioned under the Messiah's feet. That's what the church, the global church, the multi-ethnic church. And I'm not talking just one body. I am talking Christ's body. Displays to Satan. So folks, there is cosmic significance in what is happening right here this morning. 
As we come here and gather in worship, we are reminding Satan that he has been defeated and that Christ is victorious. Your participation in church is, has cosmic significance. It is no little thing. And it's unfortunate that often it's treated like an addition. Right? It's, it's unfortunate that many of us treat church like it's just an add-on or a tack-on. Folks, I don't see how you can read this and draw that conclusion. It's not just a club that you are opting into. Right? It's not just a, an addition into your life with all of the other activities and all of the other things that you have going on. The church has cosmic significance. And when we gather here this morning, we are displaying that to Satan. The power of Jesus to bring us together from different places in life. And only the blood of Jesus can do that. It's amazing. It's an amazing vision. Two things, just in closing, I want to leave you with. I want you to notice the self nature of this new community. Notice the selfless nature of this new community. As we consider how does this passage shape us as a people, and it should shape us. Every passage we read on a Sunday, every passage in this book should give shape and form to how we live together as the body of Christ. So the question is how? Okay, I want you to notice the selfless nature of this new community. See it in verse 13. So I ask not you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul is no fool. He recognizes that the very fact that he's in prison as he's writing these words has the potential of discouraging the recipients of this letter, right? Paul's in prison because he is proclaiming the mystery, the inclusion of the Gentiles into the body of Christ, and it's gotten him in jail. So it's a good likelihood that as the Ephesians are reading his letter from where he's at, that they could have the potential of being discouraged, that they could lose heart. Paul says, do not lose heart. Consider the cosmic significance of the church, of what Jesus' blood has died to create, and know that my suffering, he says, is for your glory. Paul is not primarily concerned with his comfort. He's not primarily concerned with his needs or wants or desires. He's primarily concerned for their glory. What does that mean? It means their salvation. Paul is willing to go to jail so that they can go to heaven, right? Completely Selfless, And this is, shouldn't be surprising to us. This is the way we get into the kingdom of God. Because a sinless Savior died for a sinful people. Right? A suffering servant is what gets us access to his community. To his kingdom. And Paul says this, and as you were to just consider through the ages, is how the church advances is through the suffering of its saints. So missionaries, I think of Jeremy and Emily standing up here last week. They shared for us their suffering and how their suffering was for the glory of the church. And there's many in here who today suffer for the sake of the church. Second thing I want you to see 
is I want you to be strengthened. Again, verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Your participation, your membership, your inclusion in the body of Christ, here, your presence here this morning, brothers and sisters, is a declaration to the enemy that the battle has been determined. That the victor is on the throne. And that we belong to him. And that the evil forces, and that Satan, the demons of this world, are limited in what they can do to you and to me. Just your presence as the body of Christ puts God's manifold wisdom on display and demons shudder as a result. It's a powerful image. Go ahead and close in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much as we just consider, once again, Lord, your, your eternal plan, which was not plan B, but was from the beginning, to exalt your Son over all of creation and to make a people for yourself who are united together as they are united in him. Lord, this is no small vision. And even in Paul's testimony, we see for it to be a reality requires suffering requires perseverance, requires difficulty. And so, Lord, I pray just specifically for our church, for our church, Parkview East, that as we seek to be your church, your witness in this community, Father, Lord, I pray that you would knit us together as a people, that we would be reminded of our shared need and your shared provision that we have in you, Lord, and that we would be able to link arms, voices, and hearts as we put your wisdom on display for all the world to see. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.